everyone, welcome to another episode of Baroque Banter. I'm Erin Hilliard, Artistic Director of Pinchgut Opera, and today we're going to explore another convention from Baroque Opera, and that is the Love Duet. Let's begin immediately with probably the most famous love duet of the 17th century, and that's Porti Miro from Monteverdi's Coronation of Popea. Thank you. 
That was the final duet from Monteverdi's Coronation of Poppea with Helen Sherman and Jake Arditi from the Pinchcut Opera production of 2017. The convention of finishing an act with a love duet between major characters was established very early on in the history of public opera in the 1640s, and Poppea is no exception. This in itself is actually rather odd, though, when you consider the rationale behind opera in the beginning of its history. Let me explain. We're conditioned to hearing more than one person sing at the same time from having been exposed to this texture throughout our lives. We hear duets in popular music, music theatre, opera, and in classical music all the time. It seems really rather natural that two people might do this. But back in the early 17th century, it was considered extremely weird that two people would sing together in a musical drama. We have to remember that opera, from the beginning of its history, was predicated on recreating what they thought took place in antiquity. Intellectuals in late 16th century Florence got together to debate the nature of ancient Greek drama and its emotive power which was substantial and meaningful, at least according to the revered texts of Plato, Aristotle and others. Scholars debated the possibility that the ancient plays were sung from beginning to end. We have now abandoned that speculation, although it does seem probable that portions of ancient Greek plays, other than the choral interludes, were sung or declaimed musically by either soloists or ensembles. Nevertheless, for those experimenting with new styles in the late 16th century, the idea of a soloist singing to the accompaniment of a plucked instrument had a palpable resonance with what they considered to be the practices of ancient Greece and Rome. But drama set to music was odd. Singing in a speech-like way, what we now call recitative, was how many at the time imagined the ancient Greeks and Romans went about their reciting. And so it made sense that this texture found its way into the first operas. But singing tunes, singing melodies, that was like actual singing. So it was no accident that there are many songs and dances in the first operas, and that Orpheus was a favoured theme, because it was just more believable to an audience when a character like Orpheus sang, because, well, that's what Orpheus did. It was like he was actually singing in real life. This question of verisimilitude is ever-present in the history of opera. What is real in an opera? How do we suspend disbelief while enjoying a sung drama? What does an opera do exactly, as opposed to a play? Composers and librettists and those involved with opera have wrestled with these questions for centuries. So even though it was a bit weird to the first audiences that people were singing and not speaking their lines, Many said, well, that's just how they did it in the ancient world. And indeed, many of those involved in the operatic debates of the early 17th century legitimised their operatic efforts with appeals to ancient sources, as the well-trained humanists they were. But the great Buzanello, the librettist of Poppea, the final duet of which we have just heard, thought that this was all just a bit too much.
in a letter to his friend Giovanni Grimani, Busanello went over the entire controversy about the correct performance of ancient tragedy, methodically undermining the relevance of each of the issues in the debate. He, quite rightly, discouraged the use of ancient precedent as a standard for measuring modern efforts. Since his poetry was destined to be sung, he argued, ancient poetic models should not be applied to it, the assumption being that ancient poetry was not sung. But, he said, even if we allow that the poems of the ancient Greeks were sung, as some maintain, and that Homer himself was both the poet and composer of his own songs, their music was vastly different to ours. Finally, he deflated the significance of the whole investigation of ancient practice, refusing, quote, to be the judge of whether it was the ancients or the moderns who brought musical plays into the theatre, unquote. His attitude regarding the futility of such investigation is perhaps best captured by the final sentence of the preface to one of his librettos. And may those who enjoy enslaving themselves to the ancient rules find their fulfilment in baying at the full moon. Buzanello was not only an incomparable genius, but he was also a bit of a maverick, as we'll see. But let's get back to duets and just how weird some people thought they were. The librettist Giacomo Badoaro defended the practice of duets and other weirdly improbable musical devices in music drama in 1644, writing, It's normal today for the purpose of pleasing spectators to introduce improbable situations as long as they do not disturb the main action. Having introduced music into our drama, he continues, we cannot avoid the implausible, namely, that men should carry on their most important transactions while singing. Moreover, in order to enjoy variety in the theatre, we are used to music for two, three, and more voices, which causes yet another unlikelihood, that several people conversing together should suddenly find themselves saying the same thing simultaneously. It was thus commonly understood that the only reasonable occasion for a duet then was one in which the characters were united in their sentiments. And of course, nothing was stronger than love. So the love duet was born. Singing in harmony, characters demonstrated an effective representation of their harmonious attraction. In the context of librettos in the first decades of public opera in the 1640s, love duets also marked the closure of an act. So when a composer writes a duet that isn't between a man and a woman and isn't at the end of an act, then he or she is doing something very strange indeed. And indeed, Monteverdi and Buzzanello do exactly this earlier in Popea. We've heard now the very famous final love duet, but there's an earlier duet in the middle of Act Two between Nerone and Lucano. This is a highly suggestive scene in which Nerone and Lucano celebrate the death of Seneca with the texture and procedures that we associate with a love duet, but they're both singing about Popea's beauty. As Ellen Roseanne notes, by doing this, Monteverdi underlines the opera's libertine message. Yeah. 
That was Act 2, Scene 6 from Monteverdi's Coronation of Poppea, with Jake Arditi as Nerone and Jacob Lawrence as Lucano, with the Orchestra of the Antipodes conducted by myself at the harpsichord. All Venetian operas of the period end with love duets. This particular convention seems to have begun in the 1640s when libretti moved away from mythological plots with gods and heroes to more exclusively human dramas. Ellen Rosand makes the important point that human dramas were much cheaper than operas with gods, as they didn't contain nearly as many special effects. And also, duets were much cheaper than choruses. We know that Coronation of Poppea originally concluded with a mythological chorus. It's now generally agreed that the final duet that we all know so well, and in fact is the most famous duet from this period, is not by Monteverdi at all. In fact, the text is not by Busanello, but rather by another guy called Ferrari. And the duet probably dates from a later revival in which there was limited stage equipment, which meant that they couldn't stage this mythological chorus. And by the time of this particular revival of Poppea in the 1650s, love duets were so popular, so it made sense to put one in. Certainly, it's really rare to find any Venetian opera from the 1640s, 50s or 60s that doesn't end with a love duet. Sometimes they even ended with pairs of duets, and in fact that is how Cavalli's Giazzone ends. It presents the coming together of formally opposing forces in two duets, each for two high voices. Unusually though, it begins with a duet between the erstwhile rivals Medea and Isifele, and not who we might expect, which was the reunited lovers Isifele and Giazzone. We'll play that excerpt for you now. Right before that duet, you'll hear a brief comic scene with the stuttering Demo. And of course, a stuttering character is yet another convention from Venetian opera of the time. Spitzi, spitzi, spitzi. 
was the final scene from Cavalli's Giazzone from Pinchgut's 2013 production conducted by myself, featuring not one, but two love duets superimposed over one another. Duets and ensembles in general continue to be very rare indeed in opera as we progress through to the 18th century. As we've mentioned, the spectre of verisimilitude often hovered over all sung drama that took place in the theatre, and so ensembles and duets are not to be found in abundance in the works of Handel, Vivaldi and contemporaries. Rather, it is the solo aria that dominates. Reforms to serious opera in the early 18th century reduced the numbers of characters in opera, and this affected ensemble writing, although they did remain important in comic works, and it's there that we find the most interesting ensemble work in the 18th century. Indeed, in many operas at the time, the lover's duet, just as it was in the 17th century, was the dramatic high point. And taking their cue again from 17th century precepts, duets in opera in the 18th century often took place at the ends of acts, where the protagonists gave expression to their emotions of bliss, but now increasingly total despair. So it wasn't just about love, it was about a heightened emotional state. Let's hear a duet of bliss before we hear one of total despair. And this is from Handel's Athaliah from 1733. Here you get the sense that Handel doesn't really want to write a real duet. Each of the characters sing by themselves first in an alternating way as solo. And it's only at the end that Handel brings them together in harmonious accord. In a way, this resembles the larger plotline of Athaliah itself. Josebeth, who sings in this duet, has doubts and often loses her faith, but it's Joad, who also sings in this duet, that convinces her. Cease thy anguish, she sings. Smile once more. Let thy tears no longer flow.
That was Miriam Allen and Clint van der Linde in Handel's Athalia, from a live broadcast from our production in 2018. We've heard an 18th century duet of bliss. Let's now listen to an 18th century duet of total despair. And this comes towards the third act of Hasse's Artaserse. Here, Hasse uses a similar technique to Handel. Each singer sings by themselves for large swathes of the duet. But more than Handel does, Hasse brings the voices together in duet in increasingly close proximity as their despair grows. Now, Hasse doesn't paint their despair with agitation or a minor key. Rather, there's pathos and nobility in his choice to set the text in a major key. There's also much more melismatic writing in this duet than there was in Handel's, and there's also an opportunity for an extended cadenza at the end. Now, this is entirely in keeping with the star-quality cast that Hasse had at his disposal, full as it was with star sopranos and castrati who were paid enormous amounts of money. O oh gods, the two estranged lovers sing to each other, when will there be an end to your cruelty?
That was Vivica Janot and David Hansen in the final duet from Act 3 of Hasse's Artaserse with the Orchestra of the Antipodes, conducted by myself. Handel and other composers in the 18th century do write glorious duets in which two voices intertwine luxuriously in the ways that we've already heard from 17th century Venetian theatre. Handel's duets in Theodora are among the most sublime, and it's no accident that Handel sets one of them at the end of Act 2, which we'll listen to now, in what we now call, and in fact was called in the 18th century, the Stile Antico, which just means the antique style. Handel in this duet is referencing all those older techniques and procedures of composers of the 17th century, of Monteverdi, of Cavalli, of Cesti, of Sacrati, of Legrenzi. And what you'll hear are voices that are joined together in very close proximity with lancing dissonances that are resolved. This was the kind of way that people composed in the 17th century. And by referencing it here, Handel seems to refer to something transcendental, something beyond the here and now, something beyond the world itself. And that certainly makes sense with the text. I hope again to meet on earth, they sing, but sure shall meet in heaven. Here is Valda Wilson and Christopher Lowry with To Thee, Thou Glorious Son of Worth from Act Two of Theodora with the Orchid of the Antipodes conducted by myself. Thank you so much for joining me for yet another episode of Baroque Banter and I hope to see you again soon in the theatre. Mm-hmm.